This is our first session on Ephesians 1, 17 to 19, which is the content of the prayer of Paul. Remember back here in 15 and 16, he begins the prayer, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, and then the content of the prayers begins, namely, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which you've been called, to which he has called you, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So there's the initial content of his prayer. And what I want to focus on now is simply these two ascriptions to God. He's the God, the God to whom he's praying, he makes explicit, is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the Father of glory. So, Father of glory, I ask you to help me and to help us as we focus on these two designations of your self, that we would see why you're called this, how it relates to the prayer, and that we would grow in grace and in, in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus and of your own heart, Father. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, I've already dealt with this in uh, chapter 1, 3 through 6, part 2. So if you want a 10-minute exposition of what it means to call God the God of the Lord Jesus, see the fuller statement there. Let me just sum it up here. God is not called the God of our Lord Jesus Christ as if he were not our God, like God of our Lord Jesus, but not God of us, but rather, and full of hope, He's the God of our Lord Jesus in such a way as to become the foundation of his becoming our God. Apart from his being the God of our Lord Jesus Christ uniquely, he would only remain our enemy. God is not our God in any hopeful or covenant way, any loving way, unless He's the God of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jesus Christ, the God-man who is Lord of all. And God is the God of this God-man because his Godness decreed from before the foundation of the world that his Son would become Jesus Christ, die for sinners, rise again, become the Lord of all. And that transaction which God set in motion as the God of the Lord Jesus, enables us, forgiven sinners through Jesus, to have God as our God. So, God being the God of the Lord Jesus is meant to sound like a Redeemer-providing God, a hope-giving God, which makes him a perfect 
designation or makes this a perfect designation for one to whom you would pray expectantly that things good and helpful would happen. Now, even more important than that in this context is the fact that he separates off, he doesn't say the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ like he did in three, uh, verse, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 3. He separates off the fatherhood of God and says, he's the Father of glory. Now, why? Why is he called the Father of glory? I want to suggest three reasons. Number one, because he has already shown in verses 3 through 14 that the reality being set forth in these verses is essentially glory. And he expects us to see it. This whole unit is the shining forth in the deeds of God in eternal decrees and historical acts of divine glory. And we know that because the aim of it all is stated three times. We're chosen, we're predestined to the praise of his glorious grace, the praise of the glory of his grace, literally. He works all things according to the counsel of his will to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit has become a down payment of our inheritance to the praise of his glory. Glory, glory, glory. There is no doubt what the main revelation is in verses 3 through 14. It's glory. And the big issue in this book is, do you see it? Do you see the glory? And so he begins the prayer, and it's a prayer that we would see glory. He begins it by saying, I'm praying to the Father of glory, the Father who is all glorious, the Father who is the source of all glory and is marked by the beauty and the greatness and the worth which we call glory. So that's the first reason, I think, is that prior to this, in verses 30 through 14, glory was the main reality being revealed for our praise. Now, here's the second reason. He means for us to uh, see glory in each of the three things that he prays for here, and therefore he's asking that our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, be enlightened and that we be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that we can know, and here's the middle one, there's one, the hope to which we've been called, the riches of the glory of his inheritance, and three, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Now, only one of them is called glory, but I want to show that the other three are glory. But look at the middle one. I'm praying that the eyes of your heart would see and that you would know, you would have knowledge of him and that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened so that you could know, experientially perceive the beauty and value of glory. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance? 
So that one is explicit. But think about this, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is that? What is the hope to which he's called us? Romans 5, 2, through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's the content of our hope. Or Titus 2.13, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Glory is the essence of our hope. So he's praying to the Father of glory so that we would see the glory of our hope. He's praying to the Father of glory that we would see the glory of the inheritance. And what about this third one? He wants us to see the immeasurable greatness of his power. Let me add what follows here. Power that accords with the working of his great might when he, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. How did he do that? Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The resurrection power that is being described here, the power that is according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he raised him by glory. So we are to see the glory of the Father there as well. So those are my first two reasons why he pauses to say, I'm praying to the Father of glory. The first reason, because in 3 to 14, that's the very essence of the reality being revealed. The second reason is because he's praying that the eyes of our hearts would be open to see the glory of hope and the glory of the inheritance and the glory of the power. One last reason for why I think the Father is called the Father of glory, namely that we can't see, we can't see glory without the miracle that he's praying for. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. How does that get remedied? How does this blindness to seeing glory get remedied? Verse 6, God who said at the beginning when he created the world that light shine out of darkness, he's done the same thing by creating new people, new hearts that can see glory. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So it's clear from this that Paul is praying. This is his prayer. He's praying for what must happen if we are to see glory. That the God of our Lord Jesus, this beneficent God, who is undertaken in the Lord Jesus to make him our God, is the Father of glory. And as the Father of glory, who else is better suited to grant us a kind of spirit and to grant us the kind of eyes that can see the riches of glory? So that's what we're about to see. 
how this prayer is designed to make the seeing of glory possible.